0: Welcome to D.M.H. Stallard's Employment Podcast. My name is Greg Burgess. I'm one of the partners in the employment team. Today you're going to hear from myself and from Will Walsh, who's another one of the partners in the employment team. So hopefully from today you'll get plenty of variety um, on different topics. With myself, first of all, looking backwards in terms of picking out maybe about half a dozen key cases from last year. And then Will's going to look forwards um, into legislative changes, any cases that we are expecting to come through in the uh, next year or so. Okay, so we've got lots to get through today. I'm going to start with a case which um, deals with the interesting conflict between different philosophical and religious beliefs. And it's an area which we see in the press around gender identity, transgender rights, but this case looked at an individual who worked for the Department for Work and Pensions. He was a doctor and he had a role as a health and disabilities assessor. So he would speak to claimants for disability benefits and he would assess whether or not they should be allowed those benefits. His relationship with the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions, was a relatively short one because he started with them in May of 2018 and within the first few days he went to an induction and one of his other assessors who had just joined asked the person leading the induction session what their approach should be for someone who was transgender, someone who was applying for disability-related benefits but who was transgender. And the person running the session said that they should be given, that the policy of the DWP is that the person should be given their preferred name and their preferred title, and they should always be referred to in the gender in which they present themselves. Now, Dr. Macareth was a practicing Christian, um, and whilst he said he was happy to address them using their actual first name, he wasn't comfortable with using their chosen pronoun because he felt that was different to their birth gender, which was in conflict with his his own Christian beliefs. So what did DWP do? So on the 13th of June 2018, there was a meeting between Dr. Macareth and uh, his manager, and he explained his views to his line manager um, that he wouldn't be prepared to use their chosen pronoun. He then didn't work from the 13th of June to the 25th of June, the DWP was thinking about what to do. There was then another exchange of correspondence between Dr. Macareth and the manager. And Dr. Macareth again reconfirmed his position, which was that he would only use um, their um, birth gender rather than their chosen gender in breach of the policy of DWP. So the DWP said, look, we, you, know, you can't work for us. It's in contravention of what our policy is. And therefore Dr. Macareth brought a claim. He brought various claims in the tribunal. Now the decision took different and looked at different elements of the claim. So the first question was around his um, beliefs, because the question is whether or not his Christian beliefs or his philosophical beliefs um, could be protected under the Equality Act. And there's been a lot of case law around this. um, And the second case, in fact, that I'll be looking at today, looks at another aspect of philosophical beliefs. So the tribunal said, first of all, that his beliefs were capable of, capable of protection under the Equality Act. Even though his beliefs might offend many people in a democratic society, they were still capable of protection. So that's the first hurdle that he overcame. So then he had a direct discrimination claim and that failed because the tribunal concluded that the Department for Works and, Work and Pensions they asked all their assessors to follow the same policy in how they should address a transgender service user. Every assessor had to use their chosen pronoun and their chosen name. Um, So the same policy was applied to everyone and therefore his direct discrimination claim failed, as did his harassment claim. Um, He hadn't been pressured into renouncing his beliefs. They merely asked him to clarify what his beliefs were when they sent that second confirmatory email at the end of June 2018. So his harassment claim failed, as did his indirect discrimination claim. Whilst they had legitimate grounds for requiring assessors to use service users' preferred pronouns, they felt the tribunal that it was a legitimate policy to ensure that transgender service users were treated with respect. They did try and look DWP accommodations of Dr M's beliefs, whether they could put him in a non-customer facing role, for example, but it just wasn't possible because the nature of his role as an assessor was he had to be customer facing, service user facing, and therefore they had justification for their position and his indirect discreet claim failed. Okay, so the second case which, builds on this concept of philosophical beliefs. Over the last few years, we've seen quite a few cases come through which are challenging, I suppose, an orthodoxy where people are saying that they live their life in a certain way. They believe so strongly in their particular beliefs that they should be protected under the Equality Act. And probably about eight, ten years ago, the first case of this sort of line was a case called Granger and Nicholson, which dealt with an individual who had deep rooted beliefs in environmental protection. This claim um, involving a Mr. McClung, not quite environmental protection, goes in a different direction. And for any diehard football fans out there, um, you'll be interested by this one. Because Mr. McClung worked um, as a contractor and subcontractor for Doosan Babcock, up in Scotland, and he joined in January of 2019, started working as a subcontractor. And he alleges uh, that he was targeted by colleagues working at Deuce and Babcock, who were Celtic supporters, due to the fact that he supported Rangers. And for non-football fans amongst you, uh, certainly non-Scottish football fans amongst you, um, the, the rivalry between Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic um, is fairly renowned. Um, And he was certainly of the blue uh, leaning, whereas Celtic fans um, have a very strong rivalry, let's just say, with with Rangers. Um, So in May 2019, he was given a week's notice on the basis that there was no uh, work left for him to do. And he brought a claim saying that the real reason behind him not being offered any more work was because he was a Rangers fan. And these Celtic fans, the managers, didn't want him working for Dusan Babcock. So the question was, was his support for Rangers capable of being a protected philosophical belief? Well, it may not be a surprise, but he was found to not have the protection of the Equality Act. There was no doubt, the tribunal heard evidence from Mr McClung, that his whole life outside of work was centred on Rangers Football Club. Every spare penny of his disposable income was spent on following Rangers at home and away games. And it was very much central to his whole life. But it didn't, his support, centre on the fundamental question, which is wider importance for society. Supporting a particular football club avidly doesn't have wider importance for society, is what the Tribunal uh, felt. So he failed with his claim. Now what we've seen in the last few years is is different areas of philosophical beliefs being protected. And you may remember a case around two or three years ago where um, a person who was an ethical vegan was found to be protected under the Equality Act. We've had cases involved in Scottish independence which was found to be protectable. um, A belief in never lying is protectable possibly even not believing in something if you firmly don't believe in something, maybe such as atheism, that is also potentially protectable. But the the direction of travel in terms of the cases is we're seeing more and more challenges um, to beliefs which you may have thought wouldn't be protected under the Equality Act, but the direction of travel seems to be that the courts are opening that up and we are seeing more and more beliefs on the margins of protection being found to be protectable, albeit unfortunately for Mr McClung, his um, support for Rangers Football Club wasn't protected. Okay, changing direction uh, a little bit. Um, uh, I'm gonna look at a case involving uh, breastfeeding at work where uh, Mrs Meller, she worked for a school as a teacher. She had two periods of maternity leave. So the first one was in January of 2009. And she returned from maternity leave into her teaching role. And when she returned, she was still breastfeeding her child. And the school allowed her to her husband or partner to bring the child in so she could breastfeed. And a room was provided for her to, to do this. A little bit later on, a few months later, she asked the school if she could have a room to express milk for her first book for her first born. But for whatever reason, the, the school failed to provide. Um, That accommodation for her. And she fell pregnant expecting her second child in 2020, so not long after returning from her first maternity leave. Now, what she said to the school when she fell pregnant, having had the problem before of not having a room to express milk, she said that when she returned from her second mat leave, she would want a private room to express milk. Now, Uh, no room was provided by the school. And what actually happened was, was that during her lunch break, she would have to either go to the ladies' toilets or go to her car to express milk. Now, she was only given 25 minutes of a lunch break each day, and it would take her usually at least 20 minutes to express the milk. So she was using that short window at lunchtime to usually going to the ladies' toilet. The evidence that was heard by the tribunal was that she would sit on the floor in the ladies' toilet. She would um, be expressing milk and trying to eat her lunch at the same time. So she brought a claim or various claims against the, the school. Uh, the, the claim that succeeded was a, se- a sexual harassment claim because the tribunal found that she was given no choice by the school other than to use the toilets or her car. They didn't provide her with a room to do this. She was effectively forced to do this whilst eating her lunch. And if she had been in the car, there was a risk of being seen by students, which would have been um, humiliating or degrading, to use the statutory language of harassment. One of the school's witnesses themselves um, said that the fact that she had to use the toilet was mortifying, was the expression used by one of the witnesses. Um, And as I say, if she had been using the car, it was potentially humiliating. So a quite unusual case in the, I suppose, the inability of the employer to find a facility for the uh, employee to um, express milk or, or breastfeed. So there's some lessons there in terms of doing as much as you can to accommodate the wishes of um, a returning mother. Okay, so going in another direction altogether, I've picked this case out just because it's quite unusual in that we've got a case here involving, well, it's unusual in as much as the outcome was unusual, but the actual facts and perhaps you might think are not unusual because it involves CV fraud, people that lie on their CV. Um, now, this is a fairly stark example where a Mr. Andrews um, applied for a role in 2004 as a chief executive of, of St. Margaret's Hospice. This is a hospice down in Devon. And the job description for the role said that it was essential to have um, a, a first degree and having an MBA was desirable. So Mr. Andrews sent in his CV saying that he would got a Bachelor of Arts in an MPhil from Bristol University. He had an MBA uh, and he had a broad range of management experience. Uh, he was offered the role by the employer. He interviewed well. And unfortunately, the employer didn't carry out any due diligence over the, the, the claims on his CV about his qualifications because the truth was that it was an entire fabrication that he had these qualifications at all and I think he'd been a builder in the past and he had done other jobs, but nothing that would give him the sort of level of experience that they were hoping for in this role. But as it transpired between 2004 and for at least 10 years, he did take up the role as CEO of the hospice and he did a perfectly good job. There was no questions about his performance, so much so that in fact he actually was appointed as chair i think of the um, cornwall nhs trust so looking at all the um, hospitals in in cornwall so he was appointed to two other roles as well as his ceo role of the hospice um but in 2015 i'm not sure quite how but it was found out that his cv was entirely fabricated and he didn't have this management experience so the unusual next step in this case was that the police got involved and he was actually charged in the end with obtaining a financial advantage by deception. So he deceived the hospice into giving him this role. It gave him a financial advantage, i.e. a salary of well over £100,000 a year, and that was a criminal act, and he was convicted. And he was sentenced to two years in prison, and he was ordered to repay around £100,000. In fact, the repayment could have been more. This case went to the Supreme Court on various technical points. But the, the upshot of it was, was that he had lied on his CV. He, had, he gained that advantage by earning a substantial salary which he wasn't qualified necessarily to earn. And therefore, it was a criminal act. Now, I'm not saying for a second that if you have someone who um, you think has told an untruth on their CV, you should be rushing to police. who just to show you that these things can be quite serious uh, in these sorts of, hopefully, quite extreme examples. Okay, um, just a quick update on one area of trade union law that was changed last year. There's lots of discussion at the moment, as you would have seen in the press, about the government updating and changing uh, trade union law. The one area that was changed in July of last year was around the ability for uh, agencies, temp agencies, to provide temps to employers during a strike and for many years it was the law that it was it was unlawful for an agency to provide temps or one thing that changed last year was that that law was repealed and it is now lawful for temp agencies to send temps into employers who are facing strike action given what's happening today of course um, that's very much um, uh, a relevant consideration if you like There are challenges which are going through the courts from the unions. There will be challenges in relation to the further changes to the law that are being talked about at the moment. But at the moment, the law, as such, is that particular point about temporary agencies, is one that um, has been changed. Okay, then. Just one more case from me, and then we're gonna get you doing some polls. So um, be prepared to answer a few questions about tribunal cases. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, I'm just gonna talk to you about the case of Harper Trust and Brazil. Now, this did receive a lot of press attention. Um, It could have an impact on a lot of employers who have um, casual workers. Um, So let's look at the facts. Then I'm going to talk to you about the decision. Then I'm going to talk to you, most importantly, about the impact of the decision. Okay. so the facts of these, Um, Mrs Brazel, she was a visiting music teacher at the Harper Trust. uh, And she worked on a permanent contract on a zero hours basis, only in term time. So she would be called into the, the trust, say, come in and teach three hours of music one week. And then the next week, she'd have no hours. And the next week, she'd have more hours and so on. She didn't work in the school holidays, it was just term time. And She was entitled to 5.6 weeks annual leave, which she was required to take during school holidays. And the way the trust paid for her annual leave was that they paid three payments, one in April, one in August and one in December. Now, the question was at what rate, how much leave should she get and how can they calculate that? And what the trust did, which was not uncommon by any means for employers with casual workers is they paid her holiday pay at the rate of 12.07% of her earnings in the preceding term. And that's derived from um, the calculation used uh, 5.6 weeks being 12.07% of 46.4 weeks. So 52 weeks minus uh, the uh, weekend, t- and I'm uh, sorry, the, the 5.6 weeks gets you to... F- weeks. So the 12.07% way of calculating for casual workers is widely used. And the question was, was that a lawful way of calculating holiday pay? And this went all the way through the court system. So at first instance in the tribunal, the claim was rejected. The tribunal found that part unit workers should have their entitlement prorated to ensure that full-time employees are not treated less favorably. And it went to the EAT, and then it went to the Court of Appeal and to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld the Court of Appeal's decision that there's no need to prorate. What does that mean? What that means is that the 12.07% way of calculating holiday for casual workers is not appropriate. Now. Acting for the employer, the employer said, Well, that could mean that the advantage for casual workers, they effectively get a more advantageous holiday pay. Them. And the answer to that is yes, they do. And that uh, the barrister for Harper Trust said was unfair. But the Supreme Court said, It doesn't matter. This is the way we interpret the law. And therefore, this uh, will not be the appropriate way of calculating it. So the question then is what's the impact and what's the best way of calculating holiday pay? for casual workers. So what employers should do is they should firstly work out average weekly pay over the previous 52 worked weeks. So, If you've got a casual worker who's been with you for over a year, let's just say they've been with you for 60 weeks, then you go back 52 weeks in terms of the year, if in that 52 weeks they've had say three weeks where they haven't worked, you've gotta then go back another three weeks of 55 weeks. You've got to work out their average earnings over 52 worked weeks, okay? If they haven't been with you for a full year, so let's just say they're a seasonal working, seasonal worker working between say April and September, you look at what's their average pay during the weeks that they work during the period from April to September. So if they've had three weeks off in that period, exclude those weeks, only include the weeks where they've had some pay and work out their average weekly pay from that. And then once you've got the average weekly pay, you've then got to go through a calculation process to assess what the rate of a day's pay is. And I've been working with clients on this who are struggling with it, to be quite frank, because the truth is either they haven't got the right information or their payroll um, or HR systems don't support the right calculation. So it's a very difficult area for, um, for employers. Now, the government announced two weeks ago a consultation to uh, assess the impact of the Brazel decision. And it may be that the upshot of it is, is that they changed the law so that there isn't this, what's seen by some, an unfair advantage for casual workers in terms of holiday pay. But as we stand at the moment, for you to be calculating holiday pay accurately for these people, you need to go through that process set out um, in relation to the average weekly pay to then get to a rate, the right rate of a day's pay. And just finally from me, just to sort of give a, a flavor for where we are in terms of tribunal claims. Um, the latest national statistics that we've had from the tribunal claims shows that year on year from July 21 to July 22, in the quarter from July to September 21 to 22, claims are on the on the fall now, so we are seeing a reduced number of claims going into the tribunal. We are seeing an increase in the disp- disposal, so the ones so um, disposing of the claims, so more claims are getting disposed of by the judges. What we've seen is um, quite a significant round of recruitment of judges, which are coming into the tribunal system now. Um, Some of those judges are able to hear what we call um, single-track claims, unfair dismissal, unlawful deductions, breach of contract, Um, but they haven't been trained yet for discrimination claims. So we're seeing much more pace in the tribunal system around the more straightforward claims, but we're still seeing significant delays for hearings for discrimination claims. So, in London South, which is um, the most local tribunal um, to many of our offices, um, you'll probably be waiting. If you've got a multi day discrimination claim, you might be waiting for a hearing uh, for two years, could be. So, just bear these things in mind when you're trying to um, plan and prepare for cases because witness availability is absolutely critical. And if your witnesses are leaving the business, for example, which does happen, make sure that you've still got them on board to help you out with any outstanding tribunal claims. Okay, enough from me. Will, I'm going to pass straight over to you to look ahead for the next 12 months.
1: Many thanks, Greg. Um, So, yes, so in the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to look at the um, the new laws and what we expect to happen during the course of the next 12 months. Um, in terms of the new laws, I'm going to say, first of all cover off expected brand new legislation, and then just finish up with a few cases to look out for that we know are in the court of, um, in, in the appeal courts at the moment um, that are ones to watch with some interesting legal principles um, coming up. With the um, new legislation, none of these um, have got an actual fixed implementation date at the moment. Um, for every single bit either the idea or the draft bill has been um, confirmed as having government backing so they will come in in some shape or form at some point. Most are likely to come in during 2023 but um, depending on government time it may be that some slip into 2024 but um, but I'm going to highlight um, what those are to give you an idea of what's on, on the horizon. Um, quite a lot of them are family-friendly rights so starting off with the first one is the new idea for carers' leave. And what this is going to look like is it's been confirmed that carers will be given one week of unpaid leave per year. Um, So employees who have got caring responsibilities, this is. And this is for the purpose of caring for children, parents, spouses, and so on. In fact, very much exactly the same list as we have in the current laws on emergency time off to care for dependents. So it's kind of an extension of that. Um, So it's, People for whom an employee has got caring responsibilities will have an entitlement to this type of leave. Um, But it's very much for caring responsibilities, not to deal with emergencies. This is for people um, for whom they have caring responsibilities who have got mental health um, or physical problems, disabilities um, or those in the old age. So very similar sort of concept or definitions to, to disability under the Equality Act. So people with long-term conditions that's what it's for. Um, And it's for those who need care for an extended period of time, which is likely to be for those who need care or expected to need care for 12 months or more. So it's people in that category. um, And the idea is that employees who have caring responsibilities for those sorts of people will be entitled to a week of unpaper leave to take care of those caring responsibilities. The next one, um, pretty straightforward. Um, again, it's been a long time in coming, been pushed for for quite some time. Uh, and again, it's been confirmed that this will be going ahead and this is going to be the entitlement for employees to take neonatal leave. Um, so again, this is a um, you know, a brand new right um, for to take leave and pay. Um, and it's for employees whose babies spend extended periods of time in neonatal care. So, so, so it's with premature babies that may need longer or more. This will be in addition to maternity leave, for those types of, um, of parental leave, um, that, um, that it's recognised that those who have premature babies, extended periods in hospital and so forth, need more leave and more protection. Um, so the idea is that, that um, employees in, in those circumstances will get up to 12 weeks of leave with statutory pay. Um, And in terms of statutory pay, that'll be on the um, same um, rate as for maternity pay um, and those sorts of things, which again, just for your information, the rates are going up in April this year by 10%. So current statutory pay rates at the moment are 156 pounds or thereabouts. Um, That's now gonna be going up in April, 2023 to just over 172 pounds a week. Um, so, So that's what the statutory pay will be for those taking neonatal leave. Next one is um, pretty significant, um, depending, of course, on exactly what the final laws look like. Um, so what this is, is um, an extension of the current right for protection against in redundant circumstances for those on maternity leave, and it might possibly go broader than that uh, for reasons I'll explain in just a moment. So just in terms of a quick recap of what the law is at the moment in terms of redundancy protection, what the law says is that someone who is actually on maternity leave, so only covers their period when they are on maternity leave, if there's a redundancy scenario and during that that redundancy um, situation, if there's a suitable alternative role, the person on maternity leave has to be given first preference for that role. So even if there are better candidates, the person on maternity leave has to be given preference. And that's how the law stands um, at the moment. doesn't mean that someone on maternity leave is protected from redundancy full stop. It's just preference for alternative roles. So the first idea, which will certainly will go ahead, is that that period of protection is going to be extended. So at the moment, it only covers those on maternity leave. But going forward, it's going to go back in time. So basically, someone will be covered from the moment they tell their employer that they're pregnant. So the period before they actually go on leave, they'll be protected during, during that period. And the idea was they will also be protected after their maternity leave has finished for a further period of six months. Those concepts definitely will be going ahead. What's slightly less certain at the moment is that exactly how far that might extend even more than that. So there's been talk of um, extending it, not just for those on maternity leave or taking maternity leave, but also for other types of family leave. So shared parental leave, adoption leave, uh, those sorts of things as well. Whether that comes in uh, at the same time or possibly a little bit later on as a further amendment in due course remains to be seen. But It's possible, um, which of course will bring all sorts of headaches in terms of admin for employees if it does get broadened in that way, but certainly one to keep a close eye on um, as the year progresses and more details get revealed. And then obviously crucially, it's gonna be the question of how much protection will be given. In the very early discussions, The idea was that there was going to be a blanket protection from all redundancy. So in other words, apart from the whole workplace closing down, anyone on maternity leave and during this extended period would have complete protection for redundancy. It would be unlawful to make someone redundant um, during this period. The position on that seems to have softened, which is good news for employers. Um, And again, it looks most likely that it's going to be an extension of the current regulation 10 position. In other words, these people with... Um, during their protected period, they will have preference over suitable alternative vacancies. It won't just be a blanket ban on making them redundant, which, again, um, will be good news for employers if it um, ends up um, in, in that place, which seems most likely at the moment. Then the, um, the last one in terms of the family-friendly rights is on flexible working changes, um, again particularly since the start of the pandemic and obviously more flexible working since then it's gathered more and more momentum um, and a push for legislation change on this um, and that's likely to come through. And the current proposals um, include first of all there will be a requirement to consult before rejecting any flexible working request. So Going back a few years, we used to have a fairly regimented um, set of laws on flexible working requests where you had to have a certain number of meetings within certain timescales. That all got ditched and basically the, the law at the moment is that an employer's got three months to make their decision and they just had to act reasonably um, in, um, in following that process. There's no strict legal requirement to have a meeting at all about it, although it is very much good practice to do so. So, that's certainly one change that's going to come to place in terms of requirements again to at least have a meeting. But again, the language is to consult, it's not just have a meeting to tell them. So, consulting normally has the connotation that it's discussion with a view to reaching agreement. So, a bit of um, not quite as far as negotiation, but certainly more than just simply informing. So, that's going to be, be the first part. Second one, a little bit more straightforward, is that the overall decision period, currently three months, will be reduced to two months. So from the date of the initial request to dealing with any final appeals will be a two-month period, needs to be done just within that timescale. Um, and then the third one um, is that um, at the moment, employees can only make one request every 12 every 12 months. Um, they also need 26 weeks of continuous service to be allowed to make a request in the first place. Um, and the proposals at the moment is that it will be two requests per year. There wasn't one, t- one time um, thought about to make it unlimited, but that seems unlikely now. It's going to be two requests per year. And it's also now expected to be a day one right. So someone right from the start of their employment can put in a flexible working request. And remember that flexible working isn't just about hours switching from full time to part time or, 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 um, or, or changing shifts during the course of the day. Flexible work, it also covers homework as well. It's a place of work as well as working hours. Um, so that is um, certainly going to be going ahead in um, some way, shape, or form um, during the course of the year. A very um, recent development, um, it's hot off the press as of Monday. Um, there's been some news on menopause. It's been talked about as a topic for quite some time, um, and there's been gathering momentum in terms of trying to give extra support and rights to uh, to women going through the menopause. Um, and basically what has happened is that the Women and Equalities Committee produced a report with certain recommendations to the government to, for what protections should be put in place, key one being whether menopause should become one of our protected characteristics for discrimination purposes, or at the very least uh, the be the ability to have a dual discrimination, in other words, picking sex and age combined together as a form of discrimination. The government released its response to this on Monday this week, um, so just two days ago. Um, and basically, what its response on to the various points put forward? Again, there were um, there were there were more points um, that I'm going to mention here, but um, here are the highlights. First one quite significantly is the government confirmed that menopause will not be a protected characteristic of the Equality Act, um, so there are going to be no changes at least for the foreseeable future in that regard. Second one is that there was a push for um, an ability for someone to take menopause leave, so to say to pay, so statutory pay, paid time off work, similar to maternity leave and th- those sorts of things, and again that's been rejected in terms of even having a p- pilot scheme for that sort of leave. Logic behind it being that a lot of the difficulties being faced and momentum behind um, the report um, produced was that it was more difficult for women to stay in the workplace um, and there needs to be more to encourage um, uh, women to overcome hurdles um, in the workplace. So the thinking was, well, allowing a right to leave the workplace and disappear wasn't going to help in that regard. So, therefore, the focus should be more about more education in the workplace. And and supporting uh, women going through the menopause in that way. So, the government has confirmed that they will appoint what they call a menopause employment champion. And their role will be a government appointed function um, that will consult with employers, stakeholders, business leaders, really in terms of what businesses should be doing um, to educate staff, put suitable practices in place um, to assist people um, going through the menopause and overcome particular problems and, most importantly, retain them and keep them in the workforce um, because more and more are being lost to the workforce um, at that particular moment in their lives. And then the the last one, again coming back to the previous slide, um, it's already been dealt with by the government, is that it, it was a recommendation that flexible working requests should be a day one right, so any employee, regardless of service, should have the ability to make flexible working requests, which again may be particularly relevant for um, for, for women um, dealing with particular difficulties going through uh, the menopause. And the government have already confirmed that um, the intention is that flexible working, not just for menopause reasons, but across the board, um, will become a day one right regardless. of so that is likely to go ahead. Um, there's going to be a change in law on um, sexual harassment. There are a few changes, but the main thing to be aware of from your perspective, is there's going to be a new liability for employers in respect of harassment by third parties. Uh, As the law stands at the moment, employer is only liable for the acts of its own employees. So in terms of a a discrimination, harassment claim, liability um, will only be be there for acts um, um, of other employees, um, acts of harassment against, against your own staff. So that's been broadened to cover um, the situation where your staff are being harassed by, by customers, by clients, um, by other third parties. Um, so that's quite significant. Um, there is going to be the still, still the same safeguards for employers in terms of you having a defence if you can show you've taken all reasonable steps to put protection in place. So of course, if a, you know, a, a random um, third party happens to subject one of your employees to um, to harassment. That was entirely outside of your control. There won't be liability there, but um, but again, there will be that obligation to consider the risks of your employees are being subjected to harassment by others and put suitable measures in place to prevent that from happening to avoid liability. Um, the other points on um, sexual harassment is they um, they've talked about the possibility of extending the normal employment tribunal t- time limit to bring a claim from three months to six. months months and possibly that might even be extended for other types of equality act claims as well so discrimination claims possibly might um, have a six-month window for claims to be brought but we'll see if that particular proposal comes through and then the last one in terms of legislation changes is um, again we seem to end up mentioning Brexit most years um, and again it's um, it's on the radar again because basically the default uh, provisions under the transition laws um, are that all UK law that's derived from EU legislation so we've got all sorts of regulations that are basically implementing EU law. Default position is all of those expire on 31st of December this year so unless the government does something they all fall away. Um, so those laws just disappear altogether. However, the government can keep those laws in place or they can um, can amend them rather than um, uh, rather than change them slightly. So basically the government got to make a decision on these various laws by the end of the year about what they're going to do in terms of whether they're going to preserve revoke or amend those different laws. Of course, there's a fourth possibility that the government will pass new legislation that just knocks the um the deadline back a little further. Um, that's very much possible, um, at least in terms of whole scale changes. However, um, it's certainly worth keeping a close watch on these things because there are some quite significant regulations in UK law that come directly from EU legislation, key highlights being the working time regulations. Um, Greg has already mentioned the possible change to the regulations being consulted on by the government at the moment um, following the Brazel case. Um, And consultation at the moment on that one is whether the reference period should be changed to look at purely an average over the last 12 months. So rather than looking at the 52 weeks in which the the worker actually worked, it would be a straightforward, we will look at the one-year period, taking weeks that they worked and didn't work, uh, and whether that's a fairer average to work out holiday pay. So that's something being consulted on at the moment. I believe the consultation's due to end in around about March. Results will get released normally a little bit later. So in the first half of this year, we should have a pretty decent idea about potential changes to working time regulations. Um, there's also agency workers' regulations, fixed-term worker regulations. And again, one that's never popular with employees, the two P regulations. Um, again, comes directly from EU law, so there's a possibility that there will be changes there. And the one that's probably likely to be pushed for hardest by businesses will be the ability to harmonize employment terms after a TP transfer. It's always been a headache where you inherit a workforce and at the moment you're generally speaking not permitted to put them on the same terms as your current staff. Um, So um, it may well be that we see a softening of that approach as the government get the ability to make those changes um, after 31st of December. Um, to allow more flexibility to, um, t- to change employment terms following TUBE transfer. So just to finish up, I'm gonna highlight some three cases to look out for um, that potentially have an impact on, um, on laws going forward. So the first one, um, again, is really one just to highlight something that wouldn't even cross my, p- most people's minds, but it's potentially quite significant, depending on the final outcome. Um, of the Court of Appeal hearing this year. And this is the case of Fenton against Outform. And basically what happened is that it started off by Mr. Fenton resigning. In his contract, he had a nine-month notice period. He was a senior employee and he gave his full nine-month notice, um, expecting, as far as he was concerned, to work out that full nine-month period. What his employer did is that they decided that he would be too disruptive in the workforce, didn't, weren't comfortable with him having continued access to confidential information and all of those sorts of things during that full nine, nine month period. So they had a right in his employment contract to terminate early and um, and, and law of notice. So we're saying leave straight away and we'll just pay you for the balance of your nine month notice period. So it was all allowed under contract and that's what they did. However, Mr. Fenton then claimed unfair dismissal. And the key point was has he now become dismissed? by the employer. So his position was, well, I resigned and I was planning to leave in nine months' time. The employer, in the meantime, has made a decision. Yes, it's allowed to do so under my contract, but nevertheless, it was the employer's decision to bring my termination date forward. And therefore, effectively, my employment ending on that particular day came about by the employer's decision, not mine, which therefore I say, Mr. Fenton says, turns it into a dismissal. Um, which then potentially gives him unfair dismissal rights because due process hadn't been followed um, and, and all the rest. So it was a very interesting question. So far, up to the EAT point, um, the decision has gone in favour of the company that has been decided that no, the reason for dismissal was still his resignation, but it was also recognised that it was a very, very finely balanced point. So there is a chance at least the opposite decision will be, will be made by the higher court the Court of Appeal this year. So, again, if it were to go that way, something to be really careful about. If, in circumstances where you've got an employee that's resigned, you want them to go early, just be careful about potential processes and pitfalls that might be lurking in the background to make sure you put that into effect correctly. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's more in terms of, sort of how you go about it, just in case that that changes. So something to be mindful of going forward. Second case is Chief Constable of Police Services Northern Ireland um, against Agnew. And this was to do with holiday pay. So just in a nutshell, we've got various cases on holiday pay, most of them bad news for employers, but actually at the moment there's one that is good news for employers, and this was the Bear, at least part of the Bear Scotland case, that basically said that if you are paying holiday pay incorrectly or have paid holiday pay incorrectly in the past. If you correct that and you manage to get through a three month period where holiday pay is paid correctly or there's no issue. So it could even be a three month period where the employee doesn't even take any holiday. So there's no um, ongoing deduction of of, of wages in those circumstances. That breaks the chains for an employee looking to backdate a claim for, for two years plus maybe for um, unpaid holiday pay. As long as you can point to a three month period where you've done it correctly, that breaks the chain. They can't go back any further than that. So that's good news as it stands at the moment. However, the Agnew case in Northern Ireland have gone against that. They have decided that that is not good law and it's um, and, and therefore this doesn't break the chain. Now at the moment, up till now, it doesn't really matter so much for the rest of Great Britain because Northern Ireland decisions are not binding on the rest of Great Britain. However, It's gone to appeal to the top court, the Supreme Court. That was heard in um, December last year, and we're now awaiting the decision. And the significance for all of us in the rest of of GB is that a decision of the Supreme Court does bind the whole of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So if the Supreme Court backs the um, the courts on the Agnew case, um, then again, the law will change for all of us. And that backdating point, unfortunately, will go um, against employers going forward. So, again, one to um, look out for carefully on that one. And then the final one, um, again, a good good news one, I think, for, for employers is the case of Hope against British Medical Association. And basically this involved someone who was dismissed for, frankly, being in utter pain when it came to raising multiple grievances. And basically what Mr. Hope did is he kept on raising grievances, but always on an informal basis. So he didn't invoke their full formal grievance process, always refused to do so. They offered him numerous meetings to try to resolve his informal complaints, but he refused to engage, he didn't turn up um, or he didn't didn't attend um, or refused to attend uh, the various meetings to resolve it. So he was but he would nevertheless still complain and he would complain about the fact that his problems still haven't been sorted out and whenever they tried to do something to try to help he would complain about that so went on and on and on um, and it because of his behavior of not raising a formal grievance and also refusing to engage it meant that they could never make progress um and effectively his hope was or rather his fear was that if you raise a formal grievance it would get to a point of a hearing then there'd be an appeal and then that would be the end of the matter one way or the other He wanted to keep the matter alive on purpose by not raising it as a formal grievance and just continue to be a pain. In the end, they terminated his employment, basically reached the um, the conclusion that he was abusing the process and his employment had become untenable um, as a consequence. And he was dismissed. The good news for employers is that that has been deemed to be a fair dismissal. And that's been supported by by the EAT as well. So the next um, appeal tribunal up. Has said that that is that is good good law. So that's good news for employers who have to deal from time to time with these difficult employees. Again, remember, it is is specific, um, so it doesn't just mean just because someone raises a grievance informally, not formally, you can dismiss them. Because of course, there'll be plenty of employees who um, quite legitimately want to raise something on an informal basis. It might be that you know it's not so serious that they want to uh, resolve it via the formal process. It might be that they genuinely fear, fear repercussions if they raise something formally. So it's not for them, but it's really for those, um, those troublemakers, if you like, who are abusing the process. Um, There is currently um, a course of um, action against them. Again, it's due to be heard by the Court of Appeal later this year, and we'll see if the Court of Appeal backs the decision further, which I I expect it to do so, but we'll keep an eye out for that. That is all I'm gonna say. So I'm gonna pass over to Greg, who's been um, looking at some of the questions that have been coming in. Hey, yes,
0: I have. And apologies for the rather dodgy photos you see on the screen, but there we are. Um, okay, so let me deal with a question about timings of these new areas of leave that um, Will has mentioned, and then Will can pick up um, another question around the breadth of childcare and char- carers' leave. Um, so we've been asked when are these changes to carers' leave, neonatal leave, redundancy, uh, flexible working, likely to come into force? Which is a very good question to be honest um, which hasn't been covered in will slides because we don't actually know so the way that the the legislation is coming through is in what's called private members bill bills and the government's supporting various private members bills on these various different topics which are at various stages of the parliamentary process first you have to go to the commons and they go to the house of lords then they receive what's called royal assent and then legislation can be introduced so Take, for example, neonatal leave. Um, there's a private member's bill about that. That is going through that process. The government has said that once it gets royal assent, which I'm guessing will take a few months, there'll then be a period of maybe around 18 months while the government gets um, everything ready before the actual law is introduced. So we won't really see that leave for another, um, probably another two years, I would guess um in relation to flexible working there is a private members bill which um proposes changes to flexible working but interestingly although the headline headlines in the press around the new extended right being a day one right the private members bill itself doesn't include that day one right so if the private members bill was introduced um, as law it wouldn't have the day one right so the question for the government then is well, what are you going to do about this day one right that's been in the press um, all the government said so far is that they will um, introduce that right when parliamentary time allows which is their way of saying well when we get round to it so the answer to the question depends on the different type of leave or uh, change that's being made through these various pieces of legislation Um, Many of them will take uh, many months and some of them will take more than that. So I would envisage that when we are sitting here this time next year, running a seminar, looking ahead to 2024, we could hopefully be talking about implementation dates for some of these things. But it may well be that they haven't yet got implementation dates, even 12 months ahead. So, um, you know, it is a watch this space, but the space is quite a long and protracted one um unfortunately um will there was a question about childcare and carers leave for children
1: do you want to pick that one up yes um so the question was uh, for carers leave um in respect to children does it include childcare, or is it limited to a more strict definition of caring um, answer to that one is that the proposal at the moment is the latter um so it won't be just for extra childcare and responsibilities. It would be effectively for, for children with disabilities um, and those sorts of things. It's gonna be that category uh, because things like parental leave um, is already there for general childcare purposes. So it will be for yeah, very much for caring purposes rather than general childcare. Perfect. Okay,
0: and just a question about the impact. How does the impact of flexible working requests have on home working? Well, it's an important question, uh, in as much as one must remember that the rules relating to flexible working continue to apply whatever hybrid working policies or home working policies you have in place. So you've got to remember that at any point, an employee at the moment with 26-week service can make a request for flexible working, which could be a change to their hours, could be a change to their workplace, i.e. to work from home. So um, the proposed changes in relation to it being a day one right whenever they come into force uh, will be relevant. Don't forget that flexible working requests can be made at any stage and yes, they can request home working, or they can, um, if if you're insisting that they work in the office, you still have to consider those requests. There is still a statutory process um, of meetings and responses, and you still have to rely on one of those categories under the flexible working rules, such as impact on performance. Um, burden of additional costs, those sorts of things. You still need to um, be prepared to consider them in that way. So nothing's changed as far as that's concerned. Thank you everyone for joining us today and on behalf of Will, myself and the rest of the team, um, we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks very much indeed.
1: Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our upcoming podcasts and events, please visit our website or follow us on LinkedIn.